Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Max Kaiser, the author of Jewish Anti-Fascism and the False Promise of Settler Colonialism. Thanks for joining us, Max. Thanks very much for having me on. I think this is my third time on Yenam Pasaran. Is that does that make me the most frequent guest? Or have you got other <laughs> very frequent frequent visitors to the program? I think is this your maybe your first time on YNP proper? Maybe you were on the old show. Oh, what was the old one called? Oh, the... The uh, show. Oh, true. No, I think I've been on the new one at least once. Yeah, Yeah, at least once, I think. But I think we can say you may not be the most uh, popular guest, Max, in terms of representation, but you're far from common. (laughs) So, you know, you should feel... You feel pleased. (laughs) I guess just to begin with, Max, you have written this book. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why you did that when there's so many other things you can do besides writing books? Good question. The book was published last year, but it was it's basically an adaptation of my PhD thesis. And I started that PhD thesis all the way back in 2015. And uh, as you guys will Remember, 2015 was a kind of an auspicious year for fascism and anti-fascism in Australia and in Melbourne more particularly with emergence of Reclaim Australia and then all the, the fascist group of skills that came onto the street following, following that. So the anti-fascism part wasn't the initial part of my research. I initially just started wanting to look at a more general history of Australian Jews in the second half of the 20th century and I guess looking at Australian Jews' interaction with multiculturalism in Australia more broadly. But once I got to the archives, I started in the early 1950s and I basically never left that era because there was a lot going on Uh, and uh, there was a, a group that I focused on called the Jewish Council to Combat Fascism and Anti-Semitism. And it was a group that had been written about before in the historiography and that I knew a little bit about, but I didn't quite know uh, that, I guess, I did. That what hadn't been written about was the extent of their ideas, um, their cultural influence, all the different writers and artists associated with them, and hadn't really 
had a super sympathetic hearing in the the historiography. So it was part of my yeah, historical passion was to to go back and look at this group and to actually find out what the ideas of this group were and what they were doing and um, what they were writing about. And it was also, I also knew that my grandfather was involved in the group. I didn't quite know how he was involved or how, how central he was. And turned out, it turned out he was quite a central figure and that he was the Melbourne editor of one of my central sources, which is called Unity Magazine, which was a Jewish anti-fascist magazine from the period. So that was also a, a spurring on that I wanted to, to find out more about his involvement and exactly what he what he spent all of his time on um, back in the day in, in the late 40s and, and the early 50s. And then, yeah, compounding that interest uh, was the current day political events of 2015. And, you know, then 2016 we had Trumpism and uh, the emergence of a new version of the far right internationally. So it, it made me want to focus on those issues and and write a PhD thesis and then and then subsequently a book. I thought it was quite funny in the book you write about finding an article by your grandfather and maybe throwing him under the bus a little bit until you read it and realised that he might have been a bit more switched on than you were giving him credit for. Yeah, that because that was the first thing that I looked at, actually, was something called the anti-German migration campaign. And this was in the, the early 50s. And my first thought on, and this was, you know, really central important campaign that this left wing of the Jewish community were heavily involved in and the Jewish Council to Combat Fascism and Anti-Semitism were heavily involved in. And when I first read read about it, I, I thought, well, what's why are they so against like migrants coming into 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 Australia? Like is this a you know xenophobic campaign? Is it, you know, based on some, I guess, racialization of German people? And, you know, was it like based on you know, this kind of irrational prejudice. And then when I, yeah, when I read it, read, kind of read some of the secondary literature as well and and understood more about the whole political context, I kind of figured that basically it was what, actually it was just one part of one, that it was a consequence of how Jewish anti-fascists engaged with the Holocaust and the memory of the Holocaust. And two was about basically how that meant a certain position on international events and certain, I guess, engagement in the Cold War and that that meant partially an opposition to West Germany and the West German state for basically, one, failing to denazify in that period and two, becoming, you know, basically this bulwark in, in Europe that was um, propped up by the US and, and the, the Western powers and, you know, came to have this very central role in US imperialism. So that was the that was where the anti-German migration campaign was coming from, that it was not just a yeah, racial theory about Germans, it was fairly it was positioned in this broader international campaign and the the it was the issue that they they were opposing german migrants of a certain age range and they were young people you know like 20s to 40s which is the 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 
people that you know Australia still targets for for in the, in the migration campaigns, and we want want the young people. But the the they knew that basically the timing was such that these young people had grown up in and spent their whole lives in Nazi education systems, and even after the war, because of this real failure to denazify and remove Nazis from positions of influence and power through the whole, you know, suite of the, the, the West German state, that in fact there was, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go so far as to say that they were all, you know, Nazis who were being proposed for migration, but there wasn't really any proper repentance or coming to terms with the Holocaust from that group, if you make it a, a generalisation, and that was part of what the Jewish anti-fascists were worried about was this group coming in that, yeah, essentially didn't necessarily think that Hitler had done anything wrong and that they would be this reactionary force or potential reactionary force within Australian society. Max, at the time, was there much discussion about the possibility or reality of Nazis escaping from Europe and coming to Australia? I think... My understanding is that the evidence for that was uncovered years later, but was that, along with concerns about those who'd been through the system, the education system, were the concerns at the time about uh, Nazis escaping to Australia? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, that was – that. so the – I think it was the chairman of the Immigration Advisory Council said very explicitly when asked, will being a member of the Nazi party be a barrier to entry? to 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 these people who were, who were proposed to come in and and he said no so and of course you know there was you know a lot of people were were members of the Nazi party but still it was as it was in line with broader position within the Australian migration program then which was also concerning the displaced persons that were coming from the late 40s from Eastern Europe and from the Baltic states that they essentially turned a blind eye to a lot of these people who had very unsavoury histories in, in World War II. Many were collaborators, war criminals, and, yeah, and there were some people who were certainly, you know, in senior positions and in positions of responsibility in those collaborating armies and that had been involved in uh, massacres of Jews. And it did come out in the press at the time, a few few different cases, and there was some, the Jewish Council and their allies were collecting intelligence about the 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 different people who were entering Australia then. Like at one dramatic incident was that one member of the Jewish Council went to the Bonagilla Immigration Centre and was snuck in disguised as a plumber and was taking photos of people, of migrants in the, the shower block and that that basically taking photos of their left, oh, I don't know if it's their left, their underarms where they either had SS tattoos or had had removed the, the the tattoos, so they were definitely active. It was I wouldn't say it was common knowledge, but it was certainly out there that there were yeah these very unsavoury people coming. But and then yeah that was part of the the reason why they were worried about the 
Germans coming as well was because that they basically knew that there was zero in terms of screening procedures and yeah, the, the, the Australian immigration authorities, which at the time were discriminating against Jews and blocking Jews from entry, were very happy to have other people come, come in. Max, what, what did the uh, Jewish Council do to combat fascism and what did it understand its role to be as a specifically Jewish organisation? Yes, good question. I mean, yeah, so that was, they, they, I think it's a good example of the, the, the migration stuff is that they had to, you know, quieter intelligence gathering thing. They wanted to go public with the information that they gathered and to, to go harder on the migrants and, and, and to for, try to force the government's hand. But they were held back by more conservative parts of the Jewish community in the late forties. But then by the time, yeah, we get to the fifties, they were much more early fifties. They were much happier to have that public confrontation with the government. But there were, I guess the, what they were doing was doing the also monitoring incidences of anti-Semitism and any, you know, more everyday occurrences that would happen as well. So if, you know, someone was abused on the, on the tram, then they knew that they could go to the Jewish council and report it and, you know, that there would be some form of action taken. And then so there was that very practical, like, representation and, you know, they had lawyers and people who would also assist with that. But on the other hand, the central strategy was really around the political and propaganda effort and it was about joining the Jewish community with broader progressive forces and that was either internationally or in Australia and there were the Jewish council was very was allied with the communist party to a certain extent and and different various you know front groups and fellow traveling organizations be they cultural or or political of the communist party at that time and also they were they were also friendly with left-wing churches and um even left-wing branches of the ALP and that brought them into this broader left circle. And that's really where they thought they could be effective in fighting fascism and fighting anti-Semitism was this broader strategy of struggle against fascism, which they saw as an outgrowth of reactionary politics and is intimately connected with both colonialism and racism in Australia and internationally. So it was with forces that were that were struggling against yeah, both, I guess, the Australian establishment and colonialism and racism more generally, that they, they thought that they had the real chance at defeating anti-Semitism and defeating, yeah, what fascism had, had morphed into. Max, the title refers to the false promise of settler colonialism. I guess, how do you distinguish between colonialism and settler colonialism and what is that false promise? Well, good question. So settler colonialism, I basically follow the, the late Patrick Wolfe's theorization. It's a very famous academic within, in, in the field. And basically he assessed that settler colonialism was a type of colonialism where the colonists or the settlers come to stay. So as opposed to other versions of colonialism, in settler colonialism the settlers come they have no intention of leaving and they come to set up shop and they essentially set up a economic 
a separatist economic system that is based on replacing Indigenous people on their land with with settlers. So it's the very basic version of, of settler colonialism. And basically I assess both Australia and Israel-Palestine as instances of settler colonialism, obviously with some significant differences, but both in this case settler colonialism in Australia and, and in Israel-Palestine had very big impacts on the way this, that Jewish anti-fascism developed in Australia and the sorts of politics, I guess, that were available to Jewish anti-fascists and the yeah, political choices they had to make. So the false promise is basically that in the case of Zionism in Israel-Palestine, that that was going to be a sufficient answer to anti-Semitism, that, you know, you could set up this exclusivist nationalist project at the expense of the native Palestinians, and that would somehow guarantee international Jewish safety and belonging, as opposed to the Jewish anti-fascist philosophy, which was, as I outlined before, was very much about cooperation and an anti-nationalist approach, an approach of solidarity in combating racism and, and oppression. And then in the Australian case as well, it's a little bit more complicated, but basically that there were a number of different political choices for Jews in Australia and the choice that ended up winning out, so spoiler alert, the, the, the Jewish council kind of was excluded and pushed out of the, the mainstream Jewish community at the expense of a basically a more conservative and very Zionist leadership, which you could say is basically the same politics that runs through all the way to today, that that politics was based on a Jewish, a, a, false, a false promise, which was about accepting the status quo of the Australian nation state, which is also a racist state, also premised on settler colonialism, but that Jews could have Zionism on one hand, but then they could also basically accept some form of uh, belonging or non-discrimination within the boundaries of the what's acceptable in, in, the, in the Australian nation state. And that meant basically staying quiet on a number of, of uh, on, on most political issues that weren't to do with Israel. And that's kind of been the predominant, the predominant Jewish politics for, for much of the second half of the 20th century and yeah, the first part of the, the 21st as well. Max, the council had a, a relationship of sorts with uh, the communist party in Australia. And you argue that um, anti-communism had a profound influence on shaping um, Jewish thinking on questions of fascism and much else besides. Can you briefly describe the kind of fault lines that operated um, among Jews in Australia in the early 1950s? Yeah, definitely. The I think that's what, what I hadn't understood and what maybe a lot of the historiography didn't really, didn't paint this picture either, was actually how popular Jewish anti-fascism was from the... 1940s from the period when the Soviet Union entered the Second World War through to basically around 1950. And it was popular because basically there was intimately related to support for the Soviet Union and support for the Soviet Union's and the Red Army's fight against, against fascism. And throughout the world, 
during this period, there was a very strong popular front politics. So basically a broader left vision that mobilised all sorts of different groups, all sorts of different cultures and all sorts of different ideas around broader left vision of the defeat of fascism. And so that was very appealing in the pre-Cold War era or before the Cold War started heating up around the late 40s, early 50s to Jews and because it was not particularly against the mainstream. Uh, you know, the Soviet Union was also the popular front culture was also mainstream in the rest the rest of Australia. And the but yeah, very quickly it changed. And it was also to do with, I guess, yeah, the shifting politics within the Labor Party as well. But mostly it was really to do with that alignment between Zionism and 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 West Germany and Cold War politics. So shifting you could say there was like three different main factions, the Jewish anti-fascists, the, well, the Zionists, and then the more conservative right centre of the ALP-aligned people and the, the those more conservative establishment people were, you know, basically very close with, with, with the Zionist faction as well. So the they ended up in the early 50s Israel was entered into negotiations with West Germany over a reparations deal. So, you know, huge amounts of money coming from Germany had been negotiated by Israel for reparations from the Holocaust. And they were negotiating not just for money for the state, but which was, you know, it was a huge you know, kind of saviour of the state at, at, at that time, the money that they did receive from West Germany, but also on behalf of Jews internationally. And and that money was basically dispersed through some kind of complex financial arrangements through to official Jewish bodies around the world. So these Jewish establishments also had something to gain from this yeah deal that Israel was doing with West Germany, but essentially it brought Zionism directly into alignment with a new Cold War consensus and an anti-communist consensus. And suddenly the Jews on the left, who were maybe lukewarm on Israel, but extremely against um, West Germany and uh, against um, US imperialism, suddenly they were um, just like completely on the outer, that you had to have this if you wanted to, yeah, basically have this continuation of this mainstream Zionist politics, you had to also accept this Cold War politics. And that interacted with, yeah, Australian anti-communism as well because there was very strong pressure from the state, from the media, from a lot of everyday people as well, that there was this was the height of, you know, an Australian version of, McCarthyism as well, that it became very unpopular to be a communist and, and, and a red and people were, you know, oppressed for their political beliefs. And this was around the, the period that, you know, Menzies was trying to ban the, the Communist Party. So all of that meant that, yeah, that there, that was the, the, the fault line suddenly shifted very dramatically in the space of two or three years. And uh, yeah, the Jewish left ended up on the, the wrong side of it. Max, Quick shout out to the poor ASIO agent having to listen to this. In 
some other recent histories of fascism and anti-fascism in Australia, not to throw any shade on them, but they do dip into the ASIO archives quite significantly. I noticed that in your book, there must be you know a huge amount of content relating to what you're writing about in those ASIO archives, but you don't really refer to it. Was that a conscious decision? Yeah, there's a bit, there's a little bit. I mean, some of the stuff is just like, it's less, it's like less than useful. And like the, (laughs) I don't know, there's like, there's a lot of the times when you look in these ASIO archives, there'll be like newspaper clippings, which is useful, but then you're kind of like, well, I guess I'll just cite the newspaper. So, you know what I mean? I'll go back and look at the source. So it's not, yeah, so the sorts of material that they had on the Jewish council was not exactly, and the Jewish left at the time, was not really the heart of what I wanted to look at because basically some of the political history and the organisational stuff had been written about before and some people using ASIO sources, but I was really interested in the intellectual and cultural history. So that really meant looking at magazines, newspapers, plays, novels as kind of like my my main sources to like get a real handle on yeah the deeper thought and 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 culture. So there's a little bit of there's there's bits and pieces of 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 ASIO reports and stuff in there, but yeah, it wasn't the main the main thrust of what I was looking at. ASIO, shallow and anti-intellectual. Yeah. Max Kaiser, you can read about that one in 25 years. (laughs) Exactly. Max, it was a rich culture and a productive one. Was there much discussion about the situation of Jews as colonisers in this part of the world? What connections, if any, were made between their own situation and that of other displaced peoples? Yeah, really good question. The the. That is something that I really wanted to look at and and find in when I started looking at this history is that I was hoping to find, you know, these instances of Jewish and particularly Jewish left solidarity with Aboriginal people in Australia. And, you know, there's like a very long and interesting uh, history of like Jewish and black solidarity in in the states that yeah that's been very well covered by historiography and i was kind of just trying to find out if there had been anything similar in australia and to be honest there wasn't and but part of that i think is because the jewish left was kind of you know pretty roundly defeated in 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 the early 50s and some of that possibility for more organized Jewish solidarity with Aboriginal people was was cut off. But in the cultural work associated with um, Jewish anti-fascism, where I say, you know, you kind of got this deeper understanding of the Jewish anti-fascist imagination, you did find Jewish writers and artists tackling that question of are Jews colonisers, are Jews settlers, what form, what yeah, what form of solidarity is appropriate and how do we how do we view ourselves and how do we view the racism against Aboriginal people and the racism against ourselves, anti-Semitism, or how do we compare them? And there is this, yeah, rich history and some rich text there. There was, there was I guess, a bringing together of Jewish anti-fascists and Aboriginal activists through the left 
and people will know who are familiar with some of the, the history of the Communist Party in Australia that the Communist Party, despite you know a lot of terrible things that they did and and mistakes that they made, there is a a, fa- a very strong and proud history of solidarity with Aboriginal people and Aboriginal industrial and political struggles, particularly in that early post-war period. And that circulated, you know, there was industrial struggles in the Pilbara and in the Northern Territory in particular, and the campaigns that Aboriginal people started there were publicised nationally by the Communist Party. And Jews and the Jewish left uh, were tapped into those circles, were, you know, sending speakers to those events, and there was an organisation called the Council for Aboriginal Rights that started in Melbourne in the late 40s, which the Jewish Council was also sending delegates to. But, yeah, more broadly, there was an engagement through the the peace movement and other communist uh, and communist-adjacent cultural groups like the New Theatre, for instance. So there was very much, yeah, this opportunity for the Aboriginal political struggle to filter through. And because the Jewish anti-fascists already had this idea that you know, the Jewish anti-fascist struggle and the, and the struggle against anti-Semitism necessarily was about a struggling against racism and colonialism more, more generally. They were open to, yeah, basically, and very interested in Aboriginal struggles and trying to understand them. And the I kind of, in the book, I look at a few different examples and it ranged from well, in Unity, there's a kind of terrible article from a Christian preacher that's, a, you know, furthers racist myths about Aboriginal people in this very humanitarian guise. So that that's the low point. But then on the other hand, you have like the artist Jossel Bergner, who is more famous now, wasn't quite that famous at the time, but it was a communist Jewish, very young painter in Melbourne then, who did the whole series of paintings. He was He was Polish did a whole series of paintings basically juxtaposing Polish Jews in Poland in the in the 40s and like Jews in the ghetto and with Aboriginal people, urban Aboriginal people. And he's very clearly trying to draw the connections. And then you have writers like Judah Watton who wrote a whole, whole play about an Aboriginal boxer and his family and very clearly was trying to theorise and and make sense of the Aboriginal position in in Australian society and, yeah, where their racism against them came from and how also, more implicitly, how that related to, to, to Jewish anti-fascists and Jewish struggle against anti-Semitism as well. So, yeah, the two are in, in some of the texts you do get this intermingling and co-consideration of, of of these issues. But, yeah, there, there wasn't exactly a broader political history there of Jewish solidarity with, with Aboriginal people. There's a linguistic dimension to this which I think is interesting because I read just uh, a week or two ago in the um, New York Times there was an article that was headlined, A Yiddish Haven Thrives in Australia talking about the important role of the Yiddish language and it's associated with particular cultural forms and politics and so on. And while the, the picture is rosy on the one hand in the sense that the Yiddish language is still being taught and 
Yiddish culture, it's in a much smaller form. So I guess, you know, how did these sorts of linguistic battles inform Jewish anti-fascism? What's at stake in in questions of of language and, and cultural expression? Yeah, great question. There was a, it was really, that was all, it was certainly a battleground. Language was definitely a battleground for, for, for Jewish politics and I guess visions of what the Jewish community in Australia was going to look like. So one of the, when the, the first Jewish school was being set up, Mount Scopus in, in Melbourne, there was a, a whole extended debate about what students should be taught and the basically there were strong arguments from zionists saying well you know yiddish despite it being you know at that stage probably the the language of you know over half of the 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 jewish community in melbourne or at least the 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 parents of generation you know shouldn't be taught anymore because it's like this obsolete version of jewishness from 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 europe that had no further relevance and that what we needed to do was now that you know the holocaust had happened and zionism had established a new state that you know of course english should be taught but that hebrew needed to become the major focus for, of the of Jewish instruction, and that, that was the Jewish language of the future. So you can see, yeah, like a microcosm that that the the language politics playing out. The Unity and Magazine, which was the main Jewish anti-fascist magazine of the period, and one of my major sources, it had in in line with basically the international corresponding versions of Jewish. Jewish left magazines like Jewish Life was the main one in the States and there was another one called New Life in, in the UK. They had a very different approach to languages and Jewish languages than both the Zionists and the Yiddishists. So Zionists, you know, thought Hebrew, everyone should learn Hebrew. The Yiddishists thought that Yiddish was the number one language and was basically the center of Jewish expression and culture and that, you know, if you didn't have Yiddish, then Jewish culture was meaningless or empty. And the Jewish anti-fascists in the magazines around the world articulated a different vision, and that was that Jewish culture was and expression was valid in whichever country you were in and whichever language you chose to express yourself in. So English or Spanish or uh, any number of languages was a valid Jewish language or language for Jewish expression and didn't make you any less Jewish. And that was tied to this, I think, more progressive and, I guess, diverse idea of what a Jewish communities could be around the world, that they were, one, they could be completely valid wherever they were and they didn't have to use a particular language. So it was an anti-nationalist sentiment, but two, that they could change and that they could, in fact, find new opportunities for cultural expression and the evolving of Jewish culture and identity through new languages or through, yeah, using using different forms of cultural expression. So... They're, yeah, so they they had quite a, a, a different take on it to other other Jewish factions. Max, you're right that the the Jewish anti-fascist left rejected a definition of Jewishness as race, religion, or nation. Can you unpack this and explain to us, you know, what territory exists beyond, what world exists beyond 
uh, this world of race and religion and nation. Mm. Well, it's a really good one. The, the, yeah, they, in, in a similar way, I think they assess that all those three different visions belong to a political vision of Jewishness, which they didn't want to have any particular part in. So the, the religious conception of Jewishness was really strongly linked to an older form of assimilationist Jewish politics, which was basically, you know, for all intents and individuals in these new lands, but their religion is different. So, you know, instead of going to church on a Sunday, they go to the synagogue on a Saturday, and it's a private matter of, of, of faith and, and, and belief. So they wanted to reject that because they had a, you know, importance of the, the notion of a cultural and political version of Jewishness. Race, kind of for obvious reasons, they were pretty strongly against the idea that there was a Jewish racial idea, and then that was, you know, basically part of a anti-Semitic and, and, and fascist idea about, about Jews. And then nation, precisely because of the, I guess, Zionist connotations, but at that time there were also territorialist, this is in the, in the 40s, visions of Jewish nationhood where basically there were about kind of alternative places for Jewish settlement than, than Palestine. So that was still a live issue, particularly in, in Australia at the time. So the, they wanted to dispute all of that and say that Jews were valid in whichever country they were and didn't have to be united according to any of those categories that, yeah, that didn't need to be, that a nation didn't really capture the political vision of Jewishness, which was not about an exclusive as hard, hard and fast drawing the boundary. It was precisely about, as I mentioned earlier, the, the solidarity and opening up to other groups and, and progressing your political goals through that cooperation and, yeah, wider, wider vision of the genesis of racism and anti-Semitism. Uh, Max, just in closing, not that you need to solve all of the problems of the world for us, but as we see you know, a rise in extreme right politics around the world, increase in anti-Semitism and as the Holocaust falls from living memory, what are some lessons from the Australian Jewish anti-fascist movement that the modern anti-fascist movement might take? Yeah, good question. I think, it, I think it's really in the part of what I was trying to work out when I was writing this book was, I guess, politics, modern politics of anti-racism and I guess a left anti-racism and a kind of like, you know, there's often seen as being a tension between an identity-based anti-racism and like a more universalist-based anti-racism and, and I guess left politics more generally. And the Jewish anti-fascists really had this you know, I think very clever and potentially very, very effective way of conceptualizing it, which is that they they emphasize the strong need for Jewish consciousness and Jewish group belonging as being really important in 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 combating anti-Semitism. So you had that kind of in-group look. But on the other hand, they 
never wanted to divorce those issues and their own development and their own consciousness from this broader vision of the yeah, political solidarity. And I think that that is kind of something that we need and that still is, you know, a bit of an, an issue on the anti, anti-fascist, anti-racist left is like, how do you take seriously an anti-racism and the subjectivity of people who've been racialized as leading that, that struggle without devolving into identity politics and keeping those broader political questions in tension, I suppose. So I think that that may be the lesson. The, the more, the more, the other way, the other, I guess, maybe more obvious lesson is that, you know, there was no immediate danger in after World War II of Australia becoming fascist or, or being taken over by a fascist regime, which they were well aware of. But it was this, op- it was, they basically had this view informed by what had happened in the Holocaust that Jews or other racialized people who were, you know, potential victims of fascism should never be complacent. And even the smallest incipient growth of fascists or fascist movements needed to be cut off at the knees as quickly as possible. You can never just sit back on your laurels and imagine that, yeah, that, that, that you were safe because of this, that or the other, that it's an ongoing political project that, that Jews or, yeah, others need to be engaged in and that required also looking at, you know, having that broader, broader take on fascism and making sure that you were learning about and tackling racism more generally and colonialism more generally as well. So I think there's some lessons. I still think, I do think that there, there are quite a few lessons in there for today. Well, that's all we've got time for on the radio, but we'll have a few more questions with Max Kaiser on the podcast, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash Pesaran. Max, if people want to find the book, where should they look? You can access it through your university library. But it is, if you don't have access to a university library, it is prohibitively expensive at the moment. So there's a there's a paperback version coming out, I think, later in the year. But if you don't have access through a university library or another library, please DM me, email me, etc., and we can we can arrange something. I can send you a PDF. Well, that's our show, Andy. I think that we have an event that we need to plug. Uh, yes, on Saturday in Sunshine, there'll be a, an anti-fascist gathering organised by the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. I understand that that begins at 2 o'clock. People will be meeting at the IGA car park at Sunshine West, and it's been called in order to protest a local uh, Nazi gym. So yeah, check out the CAF socials or calf.melbourne for any updated details on that Saturday, 2pm. All right, we'll see you next week. See you then. Euer Narrische Zionisten mit eier narrischen Seichel. Ihr merkt doch gehen zu dem Arbeiter und lernen bei ihm Seichel. Ihr merkt doch gehen zu dem Arbeiter und lernen bei ihm Seichel. Ihr wilt uns führen, kann Jerusalem. Wir sollen dort Gole dein. Wir wollen besser sein in Russenland. Wir wollen sehr. Befreien. Wir wollen besser sein in Russenland. Wir wollen sich befreien.
foolish little Zionists With your utopian mentality You'd better go down to the factory And learn the workers' reality You'd better go down to the factory And learn the workers' reality You want to take us to Jerusalem So we can die as a nation We'd rather stay in the diaspora And fight for our liberation We'd rather stay in the diaspora And wait for our liberation Лупенькие сионисты, вы такие утописты, вы бы лучше шли в рабочие или в трубачисты, вы бы лучше шли в рабочие или в трубачисты, Иерушалаем, идти за вами не желаем, мы в России останемся, бороться с Николаем, мы в России. Wir wollen besser sein in Russland, wir wollen sich befreien. Have you experienced or seen racism against black followers? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter.